Greetings, friends, and welcome to Modern Gnostic, Season 2, Episode 3. I'm really excited for today's episode. We have a very interesting interview with my friend Zal Aderbad, who is the head of the Occidental Temple of the Wise Lord, which is a Western manifestation of the ancient Indo-Aryan religion known traditionally as Zoroastrianism. Uh, Zal and I have a wide-ranging discussion um, on the Mazdan way, the nature of the soul, Ahura Mazda, what is God, the significance of the flame in the Western spiritual tradition, and much, much more. I think you're really going to like this episode. I was excited to make it. Um, my mind was on fire the entire time I was talking to Zal and has been since I recorded the conversation. Uh, we end the show with a very special treat. If you listen to the end, you will be, um, I'm sure you'll be blown away as I was with what is there waiting for you. So get your favorite beverage, sit back, kick your feet up, and join me and my brother Zal as we seek the mysteries. Zal. Hi, Brian. How are you? I'm doing good, brother. How are you? Oh, I'm doing good. Feeling good. Well, good. Good. Great. Well, it sounds like we have a good connection and we're recording. So I want to welcome you, Zal, to Modern Gnostic Podcast and thank you for coming on. And we're definitely glad to have you here. Well, I'm glad to be here, of course. It's good to talk to you. Well, great. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think you and I became Facebook friends a little over a year ago, and I mm-hmm. joined the Occidental Temple of the Wise Lord Facebook group mm-hmm. at about that time. And, um, you know, you and I were talking on the phone the other day about kind of a, a confluence of circumstances in my life that made me reach out to you to it's about the Mazdan Way and the Occidental mm-hmm. Temple of the Wise Lord, and that's why I wanted to have you on today. So maybe you could just start out giving us a little background about yourself and what you feel is relevant to how you found um, this kind of modern manifestation of uh, the Zoroastrian tradition. Sure, yeah. So since, uh, um, since my youth, I had been interested in um, various mythologies and, of course, I always steer away from the classical ones because those are the ones that everybody's taught, but I was looking for the more obscure. Uh, and, of course, that led to uh, a lot of the Indo-European pantheons other than the classical Greek and Roman. Uh, and I, I, I guess my, my big start was with uh, the Celtic uh, traditions, primarily the uh, Irish and Scottish and um, and so uh, they they have a concept called the fire in the head, and in, uh, in the Irish and Druidism, and um, that always kind of struck me as you know Promethean in some sort of way, where the fire in the head is not only inspiration but also consciousness, mm-hmm. and uh, and I found that stream running through most of the uh, Indo-European systems of uh, mythology and just those cultures generally 
And so ultimately that led to the temple. Of course, it took me through, as we discussed before, things like uh, studying the Temple of Set. I never joined, but I, I studied it. And, and I still do uh, practice some of the ideas and philosophies of the Temple of Set. And those are the ones that are uh, contiguous with the Mazdan way. Uh, you know, like the idea of a God of consciousness, of a pure focused consciousness where uh, there is a, a general principle of what is consciousness and that is God by whatever name, Set, or Mazda, pick one. Right. And uh, th- even even in the Irish, there's uh, Endorda, Dagda, and uh, he is uh, the good God. Of course, that's good as in skilled and praiseworthy and good as in uh, conscious. And so those veins, they tend to run through the Indo-European cultural mythologies and and religions. And so those were the ones that I was most attracted to. Eventually that led to an idea of like pan-Indo-Europeanism, right? Right. And that there was that, because it wasn't the only vein, right? And you had the tripartite tripartite structure of the gods and and uh, society in most Indo-European cultures where you have you know at the top the king which attached in some way to a to a prophet or a priest or a poet and directly under that is the physical power or uh, uh, military warrior-like aspect and beneath that is the producers slash reproducers artisans skilled laborers and so I noticed that that was all the way through. And when I did run across Zoroastrianism in a history book or in a uh, mytho history book, it was it talked about those same things where um, what might uh, we might see Odin as the top tier with with tier Tiwaz, you know, tier. And so that would equate effectively to Vohumana Asha and, you know, Spintamanu. And then below that would be. Thor, and so maybe Veratragna as overcomer of obstacles, smasher of obstacles. And below that would be uh, Freya Freyr, and of course the um, corresponding uh, deities in, uh, or Meshesmentas in, in uh, Zoroastrianism would be Harbatata Meritat. And so uh, I, it, I found all these commonalities and, and continuity, and it just struck me. And when I realized that it was the dating of it, you know, roughly 3,700 years old, unbroken. It wasn't something that um, uh, proposes to have been dead and revived. It was just always has been. Mm. Uh, and so I think that was the big allure. And uh, once I really started reading it, it was beyond the mythology into the philosophy of it. Uh, it was... Uh, logical and rational and I think for me that was the the selling point that was the big because I understood that you don't believe something that you choose to believe you believe what you know to be um, logical and rational Mm -hmm. in other words it's not a faith without believing it's believing true believing is you know what you find to be true and for me that's what it was and you mentioned a few times um, or a couple of things jumped out uh, in what you were saying and that's been jumping out to me over the last couple of years is uh, 
this thread, <clears throat> excuse me, of a uh, Indo-European tradition um, mm. r- running through these various manifestations. You mentioned the Celtic and the Germanic, um, mm. and the idea being, I think, as, as far as I understand it, that there's a, a kind of a root source that these all flow out of, and it kind of went in one direction down into India and the Vedic culture, and then kind of went in the other direction and spread out through um, Iran and then in through the steppe and into Europe and manifested in those things. Um, do you, I know in my path, I have felt uh, that in a, in a major way, Western civilization and Western man is lost and, and um, is things are falling apart rather quickly. And um, I, I've kind of, for myself at least, and I think looking at society at large, kind of um, diagnosed that a huge part of the problem is a spiritual problem, that we've been separated from um, any sense of a, a deep source of cultural connection. Um, and so I, I'm assuming that you have felt something similar and that an engagement with these traditions plugs back into um, kind of our, I, I guess I'm trying to ask if you think that there is something unique in the Indo-Aryan, Indo-European soul that, that has manifested these different traditions that have these underlying similarities, like the tripart structure of divinity, the, um, I wanted to, in my list of questions to ask you, it was a little bit further down the list, but I guess we're getting to it now. The idea of the Fravashi, um, mm-hmm. this kind of divine spark seems to show up in all of these different um, traditions. And, and uh, uh, do you think that's a unique trait to the Indo-European traditions and, and people? Well, I, I think it that the way it's manifested is unique. So... If we believe that there is a source of creation, whether that be a creator or an office of creators, right? Or whether it be accident, whatever. So if it created a universe and by extension, the the world we live in, the earth, and of course the people in it, the, you know, the life forms and that exist, then we know that there if if it created all of that, then it's the creator of everything. Right. So that doesn't that doesn't mean just Indo-European. So in that sense, it's it's nothing unique. But the way that we see things is usually through um, some cultural lens. Right. And so if you and I are on different parts, opposite sides of the Earth, we still see the sun. It's the same sun. You may call it. Uh, uh, Sana or Lu or um, Amaterasu if you're Shinto and I see it and I call it Havarshaita uh, for you know, the Zoroastrian term for it right. so the thing is that the sun is still the sun right there, there's, in other words there's an ultimate truth to things a cosmic truth to things the Indo-Europeans uh, stemming of course from the pan-Indo-European, and, and when we say Indo-European, we're, we're talking about a constructed language, right? right? A supposed language that has been reconstructed. But in the larger sense of the culture, uh, 
of course, that's more of the Caucasoid culture. It, the, the fact that <clears throat> we see those similarities and those ideas of consciousness over emotion, um, those ideas of uh, structure building, be those mental structures or physical structures, these are all characteristic of the kind of uh, the ideas that go all the way through, stem all way or spread all the way through the uh, pan-Indo-European and the Indo-European cultures, including the Indo-Aryan, as you're talking about. Uh, I think that there are unique ideas in that, and I do believe it's it's a a manifesting of a a touching with divinity. It, what the what the Irish would call call or inspiration, right? Mm. It was a source of poetry and magic, but of course it was also a source of civilization. And so if we look at fire like the fire of mind or fire as in, you know, sitting around a campfire as caveman, that fire is a source of community, of culture, of enlightenment, of mind. And so uh, it becomes something that, when you see it spread all through a culture and all its subsets, then it becomes, okay, like you say, what, what is the, what is the thread that runs through it all? And if, if you notice in today's, uh, for instance, American society, um, that people of Indo-European and Caucasoid um, descent and culture are told that they have no culture. Right. And, and while I don't want to get into politics, it does seem that there is a concerted effort to stop that from being cultivated in the youth growing up now, whereas it's okay to be proud of your culture of every other culture besides those we're talking about. Right. And so, yes, we do have a whitewashing to pun of our um, of, of meaning in our culture, in our specific Indo-European lineage cultures, at least in America. And I think that stems from the ideas that, that we've lost, such as uh, ritual of coming into manhood and, or womanhood. Uh, and, you know, all the firsts that make you an adult that right. leads you from being an irresponsible adolescent into a responsible adult. And we're missing those. And so part of the question you asked uh, was how I felt it spoke to me, Zoroastrianism specifically. So there's a ritual called the Naviot, which is the, the initiation that happens in the Zoroastrian uh, culture at about 15. And you know, it's funny because when I did my Naviot, which was a, a self-done ritual, I, I wasn't initiated by a, a priest or anything. Mm -hmm. But I had the feeling like when I had first uh, killed my first deer when I was in my youth, I had that mm -hmm. same feeling. Mm -hmm. And and it was nothing but, you know, tying the cord and saying the prayer and this and that and praying to the, you know, uh, in the presence of a flame. <clears throat> but it had that importance attached to it, that gravity. Uh, it was like uh, coming into manhood when I was in my 40s. Yeah. You know what I mean? So it's I, significant. I, yeah. 
And we need those rit- we need those rituals. We need to teach our children those rituals. Not specifically Zoroastrian necessarily, but I'm saying the rituals of um, coming into being as an adult and uh, mentoring uh, 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 teenagers as an adult. You'd need to mentor a teenager, and it's not the word mentor. Do you, are you uh, familiar where that comes from? No. So it was. I think it was in uh, Iliad or Odyssey. There was a fellow named Mentor. It was his name. And he was famous because he had uh, he had a young boy that had taken under his wing and taught him and brought him up and initiated him into the mysteries effectively of life and uh-huh. success. Right. Yeah. And yeah. so I think we're all called to have that, that in other words, wisdom, initiation, wisdom doesn't come out of nowhere. And it doesn't, um, it does it by accident, of course, through ordeals, but, uh, those are things mis- those mysteries should be passed down from mouth to ear. And that's where it comes from that mentorship. Right. And we've lost it. Yeah. I had a, a very similar experience when I became a Freemason, which happened, um, in my, you know, past 45 and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, the Masonic initiation ritual involves flames and, you know, taking oaths and, and um, a concept of, uh, of, a, of a supreme being and the idea of a, of a soul that's seeking for immortality in the afterlife. And at the end of the ceremony, I, I very much had that sense of, of the, that you're talking about that, like, wow, this is, this is something that is um, probably in some kind of traditional culture would happen to a much younger man than it's happening to me at 47. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, you feel that, that awakening and that um, enlivening. And then Freemasonry also has the tradition of, of mentoring other men coming into that process of, of receiving, um, they even call it in Masonry, like receiving light. And right. uh, this idea of fire and light, I know, I know you've written a book that talks about the fire in the head. When I saw that mm-hmm. title, it, it really kind of set me back on my heels because since I was in my early teenage years, whenever I would sit down to write or compose something or any kind of creative act, particularly writing, um, I would always, I, the only way I could ever describe it to people is that I felt like my brain was on fire and that mm-hmm. I had to express what was what was going on and when i saw that fire in the head title in the book you wrote on that subject i was just i i I thought wow is that what what i've been experiencing my whole life and then you mentioned the temple of set and they talk about the black flame and i know Mm -hmm. fire is central in zoroastrianism it's central in vedic um religious rites um this motif of it's central in masonry um, this motif of flame and fire seems to be one of these central elements of this tradition um, that manifests in all these different forms. And w- why do you think that is? Like, what is the significance of this um, symbolic fire or even actual fire? Well, I, maybe the, the physical manifestation of fire is a good metaphor for the divine and not only the divine archetype but the divine within each of us right the the mental faculty i believe is that um maybe if you wrapped it all up we might call it the mental faculty but 
So the, the original fire in the Muslim way is Hura Mazda. Of course, Hura Mazda encompasses all the Yazatan, the, all of the Yazatas. Uh, and so they might, you might see them as a spectrum of different colors, you know, uh, representing maybe the chakras like Asha would be red and Bohumana would be orange and Armighty would be green. But all of those together make up white light. And that white light is, light is that central originating fire from which all things conscious derive. And so if we look at physical fire, then we can see that it consumes and it, it, it synthesizes because it takes things in and it leaves um, a small amount behind, but the rest of it becomes ether or some, you know, it <clears throat> heat and light. Uh, and so all through our prehistory, you know, man have seen that when you burn something, um, uh, they, it goes upward, you know, exclusively, always upward. Yeah. And so that was a good symbol for um, the divine having uh, a place there, uh, a hand that you hand things to and sacrifice. And his way of receiving it was to turn it invisible because the divine is invisible and it would take it to the to the realm of the, the mind of the divine realm. And so I think as as a as a physical manifestation, it, it's uh, it's unique. Because you have the other elements such as, you know, earth and air and uh, water. Those are all things you can either see or feel. Uh, but it seems like fire can synthesize all of those elements and, and turn them into effectively nothing, right? In other words, pass them on into the next realm. Right. Uh, but that realm, uh, I, I think fire is a good representation because of light and, of course, you know, enlightenment. You know, the Latin lux. Uh, I'm sure you get the word Lucifer, of course, you know, light bringer. Right. Uh, so as, as consciousness, we can see light as all-encompassing. And uh, just as light can be broken down into certain spectrums, individual spectrums, then it seems like Consciousness is like that. We we take in just the colors that we're that we can handle at the time, right? We don't get enlightenment in a flash, and and that's it's a done deal. But we can take in little pieces of it. We may we may um, develop good mind, and so there's our orange light. And we may develop um, Trishnamayati and Armayati, those kind of uh, right thinking that leads to piety and, and serenity, and that's our green light. And so as we cultivate those, we cultivate those bits of consciousness into a, a more integral whole over time, then we get that the full expanse of that light. And so I think it, it's kind of, uh, I think it's, I think it's important in that way you realize in the reverse of that, right? If we think that all comes from the divine and we get it in bits and pieces, we're getting the little separate lights but the source of those separate lights is the one light right all together is the right. white ultraviolet light so I, I don't know maybe that's the way I see it because I can I can kind of in my mind reckon it backward but yeah. because you know we don't none of us are shining with the brilliant light of Mazda or um, 
or or whatever deity you choose, you know, none of us have the full effect, really. Of course, that's the that's the goal in cultivating it. I think that's kind of, but but like you said, uh, when you when you feel like there's a fire in your head and you just you got to get out what it is. I think that's the same way because fire is contagious, you know, it spreads. And so wisdom is that way. We, we want to, we want to share the things that we learn and um, these epiphanies that we have. And oftentimes we're just simply grasping at the begin with. So it's like trying to explain a dream as it's drifting away. Right. It's kind of right. dissipating into nothing and we're trying to explain it and articulate it. It's difficult. Um, for a point of clarification, I, you you mentioned. I wonder if you could just say a few words. Um, as I know, these are succinctly as you think is possible or useful, on as far as you you feel necessary. But um, who and what or how you would define Ahura Mazda, and then who or what or how you would define the Yazadas and, and how are those two things um, related to each other? Sure. Uh, so Ahura Mazda, Ahura literally uh, means uh, Lord, but you might say that as um, if, if Mazda means wisdom, consciousness, <clears throat> life force, and uh, Ahura is Lord, so you might see it as the wielder of Ma uh, Ahura being the wielder of Mazda, which is life and consciousness. Um, the Ahu in Ahura it means it is. So it's it's like I am, right? It it is. It's it's um, it's a way to express existence in an axiomatic form. It is. It's kind of hard to break that down any any smaller, you know, the concept. Right. And so, in its pure form, it's consciousness, it's knowing, and uh, it is the original fire itself. So, the way that the Yazata relate to Ahura Mazda is that Ahura Mazda, uh, Zarathustra saw Mazda as wisdom, but he saw the the idea of Mazda as creator of things in an abstract way. In other words, he didn't anthropomorphize it. He said that wisdom is wisdom, and we each are uh, indwelled with that wisdom, but you can't pull it out of you and show someone, right? So it's not right. a physical thing. It's not anthropomorphized. It's not, it's, it's abstract. Well, it turns out that wisdom is so abstract in that sense, consciousness that you have to have for most men, most women, most humans have to have a more concrete form uh, in order to adore and worship. And so right. uh, Zarathustra saw that <clears throat> as helpers, we might see that the things that are virtuous as divine abstracts. So he often would pray to what he called Vohumana which meant good mind or good thinking, good thought. Because in, in, in praying, he wasn't saying, hey, good thought, come here in that way. He was saying, or a master, give me good thought. Mm. And so, but he, needed, he, knew, he saw that he needed and that man would need a more abstract way of seeing things. And so the, the 
the further away from a Hurl Mazda, and you might appreciate this as a Gnostic, the further away from that original fire, that divine light, then things become a little more concrete and less abstract. Right. And so uh, the Amesha Spentas are uh, Asha, which is truth, the cosmic kind of order of things, cosmic law. Uh, below that is um, uh, Vohumana, which is good mind, good thought. Um, below that is Armaiety, which is like uh, piety and serenity, uh, religious thought in a way. Um, below that would be um, uh, Kshatrawarya, which is um, sovereignty, leadership, kind of uh, the desired dominion of God or, or, or of God that resides in man. And of course, all of the all of these things are, are concepts and abstract ideas that we embody. So um, the idea that God within is also central to Mazism in that way, because um, Asha, which is order and uh, law and truth, those things are to be embodied by man. Man must seek to embody those in the same way he must seek to embody good thought. Uh, he must practice those things. He must practice uh, piety and serenity, good-mindedness. He must practice uh, sovereignty, self-sovereignty of his, of his mind and his body. Uh, he must, uh, must seek the twin aspects, the twin powers of um, health and immortality, those things that are always put together in all of the texts, the Muslim texts is Harvatat Emeritat. There are two things, but they're always together, health and immortality. And they're symbolized by earth and water or plants and water. And so um, usually those are seen as gifts for the next world. But in this world, they're symbolized by water and plants. And so we can see how that can bring you health and sustain uh, health, but also immortality. Because the, the gift of it is uh, in, the, in the next world, in the mental world, which is before and after. Mm. So the Yazatas, you may see those even a little lower. There's the Meshaspintas and a little more abstract. So you see like Mithra and you see him in iconography as, you know, having a certain shape. Right. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> so Mithra, Vratragna. So uh, a Yazata is, it literally means, it comes, stems from the root Yazd, which means to worship. Uh, and so the Yazna comes from the same, Yazna to worship, a ritual worship is uh, uh okay. comes from the same but Yazada, so that mean that would say that would mean uh those who are worthy of worship are adorable ones worthy of worship <clears throat> and so in a modern um way of looking at it we might call these gods but looking back it it wasn't considered gods and they weren't the divas that were somewhat demonized it was um, in the in the in the younger Avesta, uh, Ahura, in the mouth of Ahura Mazda, uh, it is that these Yazatas are worthy of worship and made by Mazda and holy. So, in in one instance, Mazda says that Mithra is made holy by Mazda and worthy of worship, just as worthy of worship as Mazda. Mm. 
and in one point worships him himself and he worships um uh, so you have uh apeosha and tistria or you know tistria the star series but the deity uh that it represents is is tistria who brings rains and routes drought from <clears throat> from the earth well apeosha is the demon of drought so you got the white horse and the black horse but as they battle right. the black horse the dark horse ends up winning the battle and Ahura Mazda says, well, what happened? Talking to Tistri and he says, well, I would have uh, been victorious had mankind, had humans worshipped me and had done so uh, in a ritual where my name specifically is spoken. Mm. And so you begin to see a formula there, right? Where, where Mazda, yeah. and, and of course Mazda goes on to say, well, here, how about this? And he worships himself in a way that his name is spoken and Tistria goes on to defeat Apiosha and brings the rains or the drought ends and mankind survives. But we see that there's a formula there for where God says that, yes, worship me, but my creation is also worthy of worship because I've created it and it is created by Mazda and holy. Mm. And so you might see the Yazatas as more concrete, but it's more accessible to mankind than the Ameshaspentas. And those right. are more accessible to mankind than Spentamanu, which is more accessible than a Mazda. Right, so right. It's kind of a step down. That's why I said you may appreciate it as a Gnostic because, you know, the emanations from divine to uh, the physical realm. Yeah, it also strikes me that it that it has a similar um, – as you were talking, I was kind of, one of the things I th thought about was like in the Hermetic Kabbalah and mm -hmm. the Tree of Life and how you have at the top, you know – and so in these incredibly abstract mm -hmm. ideas of the ultimate deity that has no form, that has no name, that has no beginning, that has no end, has no characteristics, nothing. Um, but man can't interact with that. And so okay. it kind of, you know, uh, distills itself into more and more solid forms mm. that man can interact with and the the other thing that struck me as you were talking was i think the one of the things that really first fascinated me hearing about the zoroastrian tradition from a lecture from uh stephen flowers was um he was putting forward this idea that every human being who is here now had chosen to be here and mm -hmm. had come here into like a solid material form in order to um, essentially fight for the good. Um, and, and I know I expressed to you in, in our phone call recently that um, one of the ways that Gnosticism, my modern Gnosticism manifests to me now is that I feel like more and more this spiritual battle is becoming very palatable to me. Um, and I, and I, I, uh, you know, I came back, I had, when I got interested in spirituality, I just threw myself into the Eastern traditions and got deeply, deeply involved in Hinduism and Buddhism for almost 30 years. And then only within the last 10 years, looking at um, the Western traditions and the way that I have mainly gone about that is through kind of like Hermetic and Gnostic Christianity and uh, because I felt this need to reconcile with um, what I thought of at the time is like 
the religion of my ancestors, which definitely the religion of my immediate ancestors. Um, you know, um, all my Mississippi ancestors, my Tennessee ancestors, and then then going back to Scotland, and you know, for generations and generations has been Christianity, and I and I felt the need to come to terms with that. Uh, but more and more, I I have to admit that the label of Christianity and the parameters of Christianity are start starting to seem too small to me, um, mm. and I'm realizing that there is something standing behind it in a, in a certain way that Christianity manifested in the West. And I think of like Oswald Spangler talking about how, you know, Western Christianity was shaped by this like Faustian idea or this Promethean idea that runs in the Western soul. <clears throat> and this Zoroastrian idea that like we chose to be here. We are not here because of some sin of an ancient ancestor and a, a fall in the Garden of Eden or something like that, but that we are here and we have a, our, our soul is of a heroic nature um, and is on a heroic quest, um, which my favorite Gnostics, classic Gnostic scripture is the Hymn of the Pearl, uh, which I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it, it's basically telling the story of, um, of a person in heaven who is sent by his father and his mother to retrieve this pearl of great price that is in Egypt. And he, hmm. you know, comes down into material existence, forgets who he is, becomes intoxicated by the flesh pots of Egypt, becomes enslaved. And then his mother and his father and the court of heaven, which I'm kind of thinking of as these Yazadas and Amesha uh, hmm. Spintas, like send a message to him saying, you know, wake up, remember who you are, remember why you're here. You know, you're here to do this quest for your father and your mother, the king and the queen places in the heavenly court um it's a much different it's a much different view of the nature of being um and it's 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 striking and it's beautiful and it's inspiring um am i am i correct in this idea that in the zoroastrian tradition we are the ideas that we have chosen to be here um and that we're here for a purpose and we're here fighting on the side of good against the side is it is this a what's your take on that i guess well yeah like like dr flower said it, um, <clears throat> all, all the commentaries on the vesta basically say the same thing is that mankind in his in its proto form its proto soul or fravashi um were with uh with the the creative force Hermazda before things were created. So, of course, we were created by our Mazda in that proto-form. But while we were yet there, before we had chosen to come to, to be incarnate, uh, there was a battle that took place, you know, between uh, Araman and, or that began between Araman and uh, Hura Mazda. And so, basically, the question was put out by Mazda, is that um, you can either collectively, you all humanity can uh, either stay here with me in perfection, in protection, and in all sovereignty, or uh, you can be incarnate and uh, help me to route evil 
as it were, through good thoughts, good words, good deeds. And then, uh, of course, the culmination of that is, is returning to your ever young existence in the presence of Mazda once more, in the middle realm once more. And so um, it said that the, the, that every single unanimous voice was raised so high that it, the ring of it, the echo can still be heard today. And an affirm, affirmative shout of, absolutely, we'll go, you know. Uh-huh. And so, and so it, it's, it's cool because, you know, most religions and traditions that stem from the Abrahamic, the Judeo-Christian, say that, uh, that there was, as you said, a fall of the first parents. Right. Well, in Mazdaism and Zoroastrianism, you're born with instead of original sin it's something that i, I coined and kind of like to use as original purity mm. and so the word purity equals power in her and zoroastrianism so you're born with original power because you're here for a specific reason and that is to be a warrior a soldier for for the the, the heavenly idea of perfection on earth in the same way that there is perfection in the heavens or in the mental realm in Menach. And so, of course, we forget, you know, we're born hollow as well as pure. We have to be because we're physical vessels now. And so that hollowness is actually a gift from Ahura Mazda. Because what if you were born with a, with a brain that is just developing with full knowledge that you were just before or present in in, in a perfected form and in the mental realm with God himself. And now you're here and naked and small and defenseless right. Right. in a world where things are never aligned with the goal that we would like to be aligned with. And so that hollowness serves us, but it also as a protection, but it also is something that then has to be overcome. And in the Navyot and in the dedication rituals of um, Zoroastrianism and Mazda and the Mazdan way, then you see that um, there is a type of declaration, which in that is the line, we must remember, or I must remember where I came from, where I came. Mm-hmm. And so we remember that we are here and our job is to remember, but further to awaken others to that same task that we all have. And so the cool thing is that now when we do something good and powerful and charitable and um, and, and in line with the things of God and with the cosmic law of Asha, we're not doing it because we're afraid that if we don't, we're going to have eternal punishment or that if we do, we're going to get some reward with God because we've already merited Sava or salvation by the very fundamental choice that we made to come here to be a warrior between good and evil mm-hmm. yeah that that uh there's a um a fragment of writing uh saved from one of the uh gnostic bishops in alexandria i think theodotus who kind of wraps up that the you know the the whole point of gnosticism is to remember who we are where we came from what we're here to do and where we're going that's right. That is actually um, a doctrine in Zoroastrianism. Mm. 
every every uh, so there are kind of two things every every youth is taught to to uh ride a horse to shoot a bow and arrow and to tell the truth mm. there's three things they're taught because it's the most powerful things in that time that day and age but ongoing is you must uh, uh in order to take your navyot your initiation ritual at 15, you must know where you come from, what you're here to do, uh, and where you're returning to, who you come from, and where you're returning. Mm. Those are the ideas. Those are the doctrinal ideas that um, that we came from, that that Ahuric presence, and that to that Ahuric presence, we must return. But remember that God is, you know, the age-old question of, the, I forget what it's called, the Odyssey or something like that. Uh, yeah. What? How is there evil in the world if, evil, if God right. exists? Yeah. So the the answer in the Muslim way is that God is not omnipotent, or at least not yet omnipotent. He's latently um, not omnis not omnipotent. Mm. So the way that works out is that if God could have destroyed evil, He would have. And if it still exists in any apparent form, then God could not have destroyed it because God is good. And if he could have, he would have because he would not that any man suffer. And so the extension of that is that there's only one way that God can become omnipotent. And that is with his homkars, with his soldiers here. They were cumulative good thoughts and good words and good deeds or humata hukta hurvarsta. And it's only that way that God can become omnipotent as we edge out evil and route evil more and more to the outskirts and eventually make them uh, impotent to the point where God can strike the final blow. Then God becomes omnipotent mm. because evil will have none of that shared power. That's that's fascinating. That has another, uh, you know, reverberation again, and and um, I think it's in Lurianic Kabbalah. This idea that that um, that man needs God to become perfect, and it's and that's it's right. kind of like the the perfection of, of God, um, and it mm -hmm. does answer. You know, I mean, it's kind of like um, I. I, I I'm kind of convinced at this point that like every intelligent, you know, 16 year old comes up against like the obvious, um, what would you call, uh, fallacies or shortcomings of like small O Orthodox Christianity. And, and, you know, one right. of the first ones that like any intelligent kid comes up against is if God's all powerful, why does he allow, um, evil in the world? Why did he set up, you know, the, the garden of Eden, scheme to begin with why why do these things exist um and i've never found the the small o orthodox explanations for that to be very um as you said like you don't inspire a um a logical and rational faith you know mm. um i think it would even be within the framework of small o orthodoxy that they are going against um, a rational sure. and logical faith um and so this it's very it's very it's just another affirmation to me that there's like something in um 
and I can't speak for other people, but something in my soul as a descendant of the Indo-Aryan pan European pan-Aryan societies that that kind of rational, logical faith. And there's even a line in, in Masonry that talks about um, that we are called to pay uh, a, a rational homage to the deity. Um, uh, and I think there's something in us that rebels against that. Um, um, and when I say us, I mean me and you, and probably by extension, anyone who's you know listening to the show, uh, which leads me to the next as you're talking is um, I've, I've written down, you know, like a series of questions before we, before we started on things that I, that I wanted to ask you. Um, and, and one of them was kind of like, uh, you know, does the Mazdan way hold out an image of um, enlightenment and liberation? And if it does, what is the path to get to that? But then the question that occurs to me now is um, if we've, we are all these, um, I think the word you used was like hamkars, these like warriors who, you know, took part in this shout that's still, I just, that's so poetically beautiful. Um, and we're here to do this thing, but it's obvious that um, all of us have forgotten it. Some of us have woken up to it. The vast majority of people do not seem to have woken up to it. Um, how, from the perspective of the Mazdan way, how do people wake up to this thing, and for someone who is awake to it, how do you make it? I'm thinking about Gurdjieff because yesterday was an anniversary of his death, and his thing mm -hmm. of like, yeah, you might be awake for, you know, if you're a really advanced person, you might be awake to who and what you are for a couple of minutes a day, you know. Uh, That's how, right. Yeah. If we've awakened to this nature of being hamkars. How do we, I guess first, how do we awaken or awaken other people to it? And once we're awake to it, how do we spread? How do we stay awake to it? How do we keep from, from falling back asleep? Like what, what's the, is, does the Mazdan way propose a path to that awakening and staying awake? <clears throat> well, I think it does. I'll, I'll talk about the last part first. Uh, as far as staying awake. So uh, Stephen had, Stephen Flowers had um, uh, written a book, um, which is one of the foundational texts of the temple called uh, The Original Magic. Mm -hmm. And so in that, he outlines a curriculum that, um, a curriculum that, that takes you through one year of every day building up to the point where every day you are praying the Mothras in ritual format uh, or semi-ritual format um, five times a day, three times each for the three Mothras. And beyond that, every single day you, um, you invoke one of the Yazatas or Meshaspentas and, and the Sarosa which is the 30-day invocation. And you memorize these first in English and then in the Avestan. And so for the first day, Ahura Mazda day, of every uh, one of the 30-day months of the calendar would be Ahura He Mazda Raiwato Verdanangahato Meshanam Spentanam. And you would do that three times in the ritual, which has uh, an, an, uh, an, an introduction 
Mothra and then the main Mothra and then the end one. And so over the course of a year, you've learned, you've learned all of these 30 Sarosas in the original languages and the, the uh, Mothras in the original language. And, and you get to where it's five times a day that you do these prayers. Well, of course, you're going to miss times. There's going to just going to be times that you don't get to it. But the ideal is five times a day. Um, Muhammad took of that uh, for Zoroastrianism. Yeah. Actually, that's where they get it. They openly admit that it came from Zoroaster. But so there's a good idea in that and that we generally receive hits of these spiritual um, uh, frenzies that we have, right? That, that yes. speak to us. And, and they last for a few hours and you feel just on top of the world. Well, then life happens and you get back to business as, as usual. Right. Right. So the, the, the idea of saying those mantras, and of course, it, you sh a person should end up doing the cirrhosis. If, if you're a man of power, you will end up doing this because it's mm -hmm. part, of, part of that uh, sacrificing part of yourself and your thoughts and your words and your deeds to the maker of those things in order to recreate the universe on a daily basis. And so that's the ideal. But by doing that, you're constantly reprogramming yourself and giving yourself uh, those hits of, <clears throat> hits of power. You're, you're, you're fanning that flame, that inner flame, back to full blaze five times a day, right? And so for me, that's, that's the, it may not be the doctrinal answer, but for me, that's my personal answer because that's what it does for me. It, it pulls me back away from anything that I've got going on that is not good in the sense of integral and um, ethical and, and those things that are the more virtuous side of ourselves. Right. And, and I've forgotten the earlier parts of the question. <laughs> uh, the earlier part was, was how would you, and I'd say your answer I, I think is, 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 is great. And it's, it's kind of, um, I've taken up a practice for the last three years of praying three times a day. And my, mm. my morning prayer is the longest one. And it's when mm. I have time, you know, before work. And then I usually catch a noon one in the middle of the day. And that's usually just really short. But my idea is to like, remember who I am, remember what I am, remember what's going mm. on and, you know, then go back to work. And then at the end of the day, and pray collectively with my wife for that same kind of thing, giving thanks for the day, kind of, you know, making confession of, of ways that I've fallen short, making a vow to try harder and, and, and all of that. Um, and, I, and my point in trying to do it three times a day was to remember, to remember, to remember, you know, have these times right. that interrupt the day to remember. The first part of the question was how um, – how, well, let's see. I was going to say, how does one awaken? But I, I know from my own experience that that's just different for everybody. Um, but sure. is there a sense in the Mazdan path that, um, that we have a, a duty or an obligation or that we should be attempting to um, wake others up? Uh, I know I feel this need and I, I, I try to use social media and my podcast that I, the thing that always pops to my mind is the movie The Matrix and, you know, just the little message of wake up, Neo, wake up, Neo, you yeah. know, trying to get people to wake up to who and what they are and to 
to, you know, that there's more going on than we expect. But from the Mazdan perspective, do we have an obligation to awaken others? And, and how do people awake? And how can you help others awake to who and what they are? So, yeah, I think we have a duty, like we were talking about earlier, about, you know, we're born with that hollowness. And as our duty is, <clears throat> our duty is to awaken to um, the task we're, that we're presented with to begin with, that we're here for. And I think as we do that, our job is to awaken others. Now, the how of it may be a little more complicated. Right. Uh, so... There is a non-coercion principle attached to it the Mostan way. And so proselytization is not, um, can never be a coercion, right? It has to be any, so I know you're talking about awakening and, and that enlightened kind of uh, coming into your own. Right. Uh, and for me, that's attached to, because I because I've never seen a more rational and enlightened uh, form of religion, then for me it's about showing someone the um, the virtues of the Muslim way. Because as Stephen Flowers wrote in, in the Good Religion, the found, one of the foundational texts of the Temple, is that whether you're a Gnostic or Christian or Muslim or Buddhist. In fact, if you're a Satanist, if you practice good thoughts, good words, and good deeds, and you are, in fact, a Mosden, mm. it doesn't matter what you profess. It doesn't matter what your tribal affiliations are. If you practice Humata Hukta Harvashta, you are, in fact, a Mosden. You are, in fact, a follower of Ahura Mazda after the example of Zarathustra. And so I think the way to enlighten and to awaken others is by our example as an exemplar of good thoughts, good words, and good deeds. Right. So as people see us do things simply because we're doing them for the good, not because we get anything out of it, not because we're hoping for a return, not because we're hoping for a, a greater afterlife than we've experienced in this life. It's simply because right is good and doing right. good for the sake of good is its own reward. Right. And when people see it and they experience you doing it, because w when when good happens and good is present, it's not just uh, witnessing, uh, observing. It's a, it's mm -hmm. if I do good and you're present and you witness it, you experience it. And so for right. for that, it's it's a kind of, and of course we live in a society where we have to overcome a lot in order to be able to get to. Where we're the good, where the good is the norm, because right now things are a little topsy turvy. So the good is, in a sense, antinomian. Yeah, but it, it it is the example that is the the aiding others to do it, and it is in, imperative. We have that we have that task before us to help awaken others through good thoughts, good words. Good you know, that's so interesting that you said that in the current times that doing good is antinomian. Um, when I first got involved in the Gnostic tradition, it was an initiation with a man named David Beth. I don't know if you're familiar with his work or not. Okay. Um, uh, 
well, he, he kind of deals with a lot of um, uh, darker imagery and, um, and he gets a lot of people, at least years ago, he got a lot of people who came to him who were looking for, you know, the, the satanic and demonic and, you know, um, kind of like the, the stereotypical left-hand path kind of tantra, you know. And I remember him telling me that when people come to him like that, what he makes them do before he'll do with him is to, you know, go manifest like the behavior and morality of your grandparents, you know, like, like, right. like get involved in a monogamous relationship, tell the truth, go get a job, be a hard worker, you know, wear nice clothes. Don't try to shock people just, and, and it's, um, I've realized you know, uh, particularly living in, in the town that I live in, that I think like one of the most antinomian things in Asheville, North Carolina, is to be involved in a monogamous relationship. Like That's everybody right, yeah. thinks it's so tabooy, and you know they're breaking all these taboos to be polyamorous and all this other kind of stuff. And it's like that none of that stuff is taboo. Like lying, drugs, um, you know, uh, meaningless sex, none of that stuff is taboo in our culture. What's taboo mm-hmm. in our culture is is sobriety and uprightness and honor um, and love like those those things are um, the, the truly antinomian path. I mean, it's it's so go goes against the current of um, you know the spirit of the times, um, and that 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 leads me to something I wanted to get into talking with you about, and we had talked about some on the phone was this idea. Um, of right-hand path versus left-hand path, which I think, um, you know, Michael Aquino is probably the the godfather of explaining that stuff. And I feel like Dr. Flowers did a amazing job in Lords of the Left-Hand Path. Oh yeah. Kind of giving that uh, delineation. Um, And I think I told you um, when we talked on the phone that when I was like 18 years old, I first found out about the Temple of Set, but I really couldn't make heads or tails of it and then got involved in Eastern religions, which all largely dealt with this idea of, you know, ego death and merging the consciousness with something bigger and the drop falling back in the ocean and all of that kind of stuff. And, you know, my kind of spiritual awakening out of that was the realization that like, no soul or, or I like Aquino's it is this mind star um, because that's mm-hmm. just a term that doesn't have a lot of cultural baggage attached to it. But um, this soul or self, uh, it is real. It is, um, or at least I'm not sure if I can say it, it's always immortal or at least has the potential to be immortal or it's made up. It's made up of immortal stuff, but it's not an illusion. It's not transient. And I think that at least the goal that I know I want to pursue is not merging into a of sameness but Mm. keeping this separate sense of who and what i am um and i wonder if you would if you could kind of give your idea of that right hand path versus left hand path how it relates to the mazdan way does does zoroastrianism see the goal as the soul merging into uhura mazda or is it a kind of a soul craft like gurdjieff taught that we're trying to build an indestructible and eternal eye and sense of self. Um, I would just be interested in your, your thoughts and experiences with that. 
So maybe, maybe cultivation of consciousness is, I'm real big on cultivating contentment too. I mean, as a peripheral subject, mm -hmm. but cultivating consciousness, you know, you might say, well, of course, you cultivate consciousness. You are conscious or else you wouldn't be talking, but, but there's a difference. There's a difference in being awakened and being awakened, right? You, you're walking around like, as a Ger fan of Gurdjieff, I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. You, we all walk around uh, with our eyes wide open, but um, half of us just don't know what the hell is going on most of the time around us. We're oblivious. Right. And so, we, you know, we drive a car. You've got all these things going on. Well, I don't know if they even make stick shifts anymore, but when we were growing up, you know, you drove a stick shift and yep, yep. you had a clutch and a gas pedal and a brake and a shifter and a steering wheel and windows and uh, mirrors to see out of. And somehow we managed to smoke cigarettes and tune the radio in while we're doing all of this. Right, right. So it, it kind of speaks to how the body can go on in, in uh, autopilot. And so does the brain, right? We're not thinking about shifting. We're not thinking about the clutch or the brake or the gas pedal. Uh, we're not thinking about turning around and trying to see who's in the next lane. We have these auto, auto autonomic responses to things. And so that's what the average person is. We go about our lives looking at our phones and driving our cars and smoking our cigarettes. And we're going to work every day and doing some menial task for eight hours and going back home. And the whole time we may as well be sleepwalking. We haven't learned a thing. And so as we cultivate consciousness, it's like being aware of the clutch under your foot and the gas pedal and being aware of how the movement for shifting and being aware that your job, I mean, sure. If you want to Zen out, that's fine. You know, you may as well drop out if you're going to tune out or Zen out. So as far as consciousness goes, if you make everything a conscious thing, taking a shit is a conscious action, right? Yeah. If 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 you if you understand that you're ridding yourself of toxins and poisons, in order to make make room for um, the nutrients that are gonna uh, make your body better and make and of course everything you eat becomes part of you, so it makes your mind better. Uh, and of course, consciousness is affected by the foods that we eat, so everything becomes a, a conscious choice and a conscious action if we allow it, if we permit it. And that's all it is because our body wants to it wants to get rid of that our, our mind seems like it's been trained to not think mm -hmm. and consciousness we have to awaken in that way become the the awakened person and it's so funny to hear people nowadays talk about being woke and this yeah <laughs> uh, it's, it's, it's absurd because those are the most asleep people I've ever seen yes but when when you when you read a book, you have to be able to comprehend and have recall, or else you really haven't learned anything. And it's the same thing with everything we do in life. We can go through it and not even know what we're doing and not be able to recall it. But every if everything you do, good and bad, becomes a lesson for you and an education, then it allows you to be awake in a sense that you're conscious. And so that every bad incident every every bad thing that happens to you in your life becomes a good thing because you use it right you're awakened to it mm -hmm. you, you don't waste the opportunity and i think that's what 
that's what being awake is. So for a Mostyn, I think just the idea that understanding that where you come from is consciousness and that's where you return. There is, uh, as far as antinomianism goes, there is, I think, the best example is the Sufi idea of uh, Iblis, who wouldn't bow to mankind because he would only bow to the creator, right? And so while all the other uh beings bowed down to mankind at God's request or his demand, uh, Iblis said, no, I'm not going to do that. And he thought that God thought that, you know, everybody else thought well, he was doing it because men are made from dirt and angels are made from fire or jinn or wherever they were. But right. it wasn't that at all. He said, no. Uh, in modern terms, he would be saying, no, I'm a pure monotheist. I worship God and God alone. Right. Right. And so he's ousted from heaven. He's kicked out. And, uh, but he still has conversations with God. And God said, like, well, you know, all you have to do is come back. All you have to do is do what I once asked, and it's over with. And you come back into the fold. He says, no, I would rather worship you alone. And they have this idea of romantic love as a metaphor for divine love. And so Iblis is looking at the creator, and he sees his beloved. Right. He sees the adorable one, the one who's worthy of worship. And he says, you know, I can stand apart from him and I can adore him in the same way that a lover adores his beloved. Because there is a separation in love that is far more dynamic than a union in love. Mm -hmm. as, as flowers like about the left hand and the Lord's left hand path, he talks about that, that that it is more dynamic and stronger because. You are standing apart. Yes. But, but you're not. It's antinomian because nobody does it, right? They all say, well, the, the humans seem to seek a union, an obliteration of the self into some divine hypostasis, hypostasis, however it is, you know, saying that, no, I want to be like you, like you said, a, a, a drop in the ocean to become the ocean. Right. But no, standing apart, that's the more virtuous side because um, you're not losing the very thing that you're supposed to be cultivating, the black flame or the original fire, the very thing that you were gifted with by the author of that thing, right? The fire itself, the original fire, gifting you with consciousness. And your job in order to defeat evil is to cultivate that consciousness. Right, because that consciousness is good, and good has to overcome evil. Evil is unconscious, non-consciousness, unthinkingness. And so, the biggest way, in my thought, uh, that that can show the biggest thing that can show that Zoroastrianism is, in a way, left-hand path, and in my opinion, probably the first successful and only successful left-hand path system in existence ever is because Zarathustra flipped the idea of what is good and evil completely opposite. So for all time, up until that point, at least in the Indo-Aryan and Indo-European, there was an idea that uh, certain things are good deities and certain deities are bad, where he said, you know what, those classes uh, are an affront to me. And so he flipped them. 
And so you still see the whole world over worshiping deity, divine divinity, the divine, um, all of those things that are from the same root as Deva, Diva, Dev, Dios, Dios, all of those things from the same root, and they're the same idea. Um, but it, but he said, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to say that Ahura is the good, and in fact, the the most supreme of Ahura is Mazda, and therefore Ahura Mazda is above all. And as you and I spoke on the phone about, we were talking about uh, Deva worship, and it is. In, in my kind of musing, I see um, Zarathustra is seeing these people pouring their only pitcher of milk onto the statue of whatever uh, and hoping for good fortune or riches and not understanding that the, the thing that they're pouring it out to, uh, if there is something behind the statue itself, is more likely the thing that causes the ill luck or the misfortune mm. and so it's a propitiation to say please don't do what you normally do please give me good this time right and so it was it, it became excessive and of course anything excessive is bad and so it's weird that moderation and and virtuous things like we, you were listing earlier are the good um that are, are the bad in society or at least uh unpopular right. And so, right. or antinomian in that sense, but the but the things that, but like we were talking about uh, the left hand path, even the end goal of non separate of non union and and of separation from uh, the creator as a also a co creator, that's absolutely antinomian in that sense, and it's one of the um, definitions of the left hand path is that individuate <laughs> conscious. Um, existence past this existence. Yeah, you know, it's it's been occurring to me over the last few years, kind of like my first serious foray into spirituality was via the Hare Krishna movement um, when I was when I was younger, and uh, they, you know, stand opposed to so much in Hinduism because they they seek this antinomian goal. They have this exact argument that like, no, I don't want to merge with God. I want to exist in relationship with God. Right. Like I, I want to have interaction. And the only way that you can have relationship and interaction is separateness. And, you know, I think about it in a, a marriage. There's like the kind of blissful unity that you experience in lovemaking or something like that. But like, if you if you just lived in that all the time there'd be no point of the partner like the the love is in the separation and the fact that there are two beings there interacting um and so you know i'm starting to see more and more that there's 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 manifestations of this um left-hand path view in um lots of different ways. Like I didn't know the one, the Sufi one that you were talking about. And I, I made a note to look that up because that's fascinating. And, um, uh, and I think the inversion principle you were talking about, think in some ancient Gnosticisms that they did the same thing where it's like, everybody's worshiping Jehovah. And then these Gnostics come along and say, no, 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 that's not, that's the fallen God. You know, there's something behind 
that even and kind of you know flip that whole thing um on its head as well so i mean maybe even this maybe even this streak of antinomianism as a spiritual principle is is part of this root um indo-european indo-aryan um tradition or, or one of the things that's in it uh you know as far back as as it can be traced um what would you say the differences are? Like, I noticed there's um, in the Occidental Temple of the Wise Lord, the word Mazdan is used, whereas generally you hear um, Zoroastrianism as the definition of this religion. Um, could you say something about why, uh, like, why you don't call yourself a Zoroastrian, but you call yourself a Mazdan? Like, what is the distinction that's being made there? Yeah, so uh, <clears throat> I think really it's more um, a respect for orthodoxy, right? So Zoroastrianism, and when I say Zoroastrianism, I mean Iranian Zoroastrianism and everything that stemmed from there. And then there are the Parsi Zoroastrianism, which are in India. They're still Zoroastrian, right? They call themselves Parsi. The others call themselves Zoroastrians. So I would not call myself a Parsi any more than I would necessarily call myself a Zoroastrian. I would call myself a Mazdan because I, um, uh, I worship Mazda. I would call myself a Zoroastrian in the sense that I follow the, the, the ideas and the teachings of Zoroaster. But that doesn't make me a Zoroastrian because a Zoroastrian has to be born into the Zoroastrian family by Zoroastrian mother, Zoroastrian father. And while the, in Iran, that's relaxing a bit now, uh, you know, but historically it's been a bottled necked religion. And that's why it's dwindled the numbers they have. Same way that Parsis in India, you had to be born of a Parsi mother and father in order to be Parsi. Right. But there are reasons for that, that people generally don't take into account when they, when they talk about, well, that's absurd. You, you know, anybody can be a Zoroastrian. No, you can't, because when the when the Muslims uh, the there was during the Arab invasion, the Muslims took over Iran and Persia. Um, that they, they uh, created laws, right? And the laws parts of those laws were um, that you didn't convert a, a Muslim to Zoroastrianism, and if you were Zoroastrian, then you had to pay a higher tax. I forget what the word is, jizya or something like that, tax yeah, that yeah. if you were non-Muslim. And so it was a sin to convert uh, anyone into Zoroastrianism that were not already born into Zoroastrianism. And so uh, likewise, when, um, when the immigrants from Iran, the Zoroastrians from Iran, traveled to India, uh, they had made an agreement on the, on the shore when they met the king because he was worried about them diluting the, the Hindu culture with their religion. And he said, well, bring me a cup of milk and a sugar. And so he, the king had him instructed him to bring a cup of milk and sugar. And he poured sugar into the milk. And he says, surely we're not going to dilute your culture, but sweeten it. Mm -hmm. You know, because we're poor. And so he said, okay, fine. You can, you can live here amongst us, but remember this. Do your rituals at night. 
not in the, not so everybody can see them, dress like we do, and you cannot convert a Hindu to to Zoroastrianism. Mm. And Zoroastrians have all, always held on a pedestal the idea of Mithra, Mithra being contract. It doesn't matter if you create if you um, enter to a contract with a person who is formidably and uh, um, desperately wicked, you uphold your end of the bargain, even if they wouldn't, because you're you're under contract, right? He is he is as worthy of Mithra is as worthy of worship as Ahura Mazda is by Ahura Mazda's own mouth in the Avesta. So breaking Mithra, breaking a contract, is like sinning. Uh, against the highest part of God. And so uh, it is understandable that they still don't like to convert, right? So out of respect for that, we call ourselves Mazdans and not Zoroastrians. Mm. Because we're not seeking to convert. We're not seeking to become a big enough organization that they say, okay, fine, we'll come into our fold and start initiating us at work. So we say that we worship Mazda and we follow the teachings of Zoroaster, but we call ourselves Mazdans because we are um, followers of the religion of Mazda. Is, is, um, do you know if there are people in the larger Zoroastrian world, whether Parsis in India or uh, you know, my understanding, I don't know if it's if it's even legal to practice Zoroastrianism in Iran or if it's an underground thing, but I, I understand from hearing interviews with um, Jason Giorgiani and some other people that there's something of a renaissance of Zoroastrianism among the youth in Iran, at least. Um, but do, do any leaders in the larger Zoroastrian community uh, know about the Occidental Temple of the Wise Lord, or the the work that's being done, or the this this Mazdan manifestation in the Western world. Yeah, they do. I mean, I don't know how like like how far it penetrates into like Iran itself or in yeah. the, into the religion in India, but I do know that there are several people, um, dasters and mobeds that I've spoken to and. Uh, that my friend um, Posh, she goes by Pantia Artispod on Facebook and Telegram, but her name, uh, she she is a friend who uh, early on helped instruct me in the doctrinal areas and some of the cultural, because she's a born Parsi. Mm. And, uh, she uh, She's given me contacts to different Dasters and Mobeds that I've had some interactions with. So yeah, they know and uh, they also understand that we're not trying to encroach, that we are we have the same goals as they do and uh, and that we don't differentiate, our, differentiate ourselves out of any kind of um, idea of being a, a superior uh, organization than their religion, but out of respect for theirs and uh, that we learn from them we, as much as possible. We uh, have, um, uh, you know, some kind of exchange with them as we can to learn and uh, to uh, to show our appreciation and to um, ask for that interaction further through, um, like through my podcast. I would like to have them on there. But I, my point, though, is that we look for that interaction 
and largely it's um, it's been friendly. The, the the only the only one that has been non friendly in any way was actually a Mazdan first, and then became uh, initiated Zoroastrian, and he and mm. he even the temple before that happened. So really, it wasn't even that really wasn't even the, the case there. Sure, sure, sure. Um, well, I'd like to give you a chance to. Um, well, I guess first my question would be for people who hear this and are interested in learning more about the Mazdan way, um, what would you suggest that that someone do? Okay, so there are some very easily satisfied. Um, prerequisites for joining the temple if you'd like to join the temple uh there are a few books two of which uh are by stephen flowers on the subject two of which need to be read and the idea is absorbed before requesting membership and that is the the good religion the first foundational text it's called the good religion essays on zoroastrianism i think it's called uh it's uh written by at the the uh, author name is Darbin E. Den. Uh, that's one of Stephen's pen names for writing as uh, a Mazdan. That needs to be read and absorbed, and so does The Mazdan Way by Stephen Flowers, Ph.D. Those are two uh, books that explain the doctrinal and the philosophical ideas of Mazdism and greater Zoroastrianism. Uh, and beyond that, once that's done, if you would still like to learn more, you can... And even before, you can uh, join our Facebook um, Facebook group and our Facebook page. Um, anybody wanting um, specific knowledge that uh, they may be uh, maybe not found in the books, they can email me at otwlclub.com uh, um, at gmail.com. So otwlclub at gmail.com uh, or message me on Facebook. Um, but so if, if beyond that, a person wants to actually have membership in the temple right now that we do, we're not, um, uh, charging membership fees that'll, that'll change in the future as we grow. But right now, uh, need to be, need to have a letter of, uh, submission of request for formal membership sent to otwlclub at gmail.com or, uh, text me at, on uh, messenger at Zal Otterbod. And uh, and we can talk about it from there, and I'll give them further instruction. But it's 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 logical, it's rational, it's really I don't know. For me, it's once you learn it, and I think historically, once people heard these doctrines and ideas and philosophies that are that Zarathustra had put forth, it changed their lives. That religions were altered from it, you yeah. know, from the original forms to make them better religions. Yeah, it seems to me, I feel like I'm learning more and more each day that, um, that the, the Mazdan way or the Zoroastrian tradition seems to be um, as close as you can get to a root source of all of these things that we are talking about, whether it's the, the Norse traditions or the Celtic traditions or the Gnostic tradition or the Vedic traditions, um, like it, it, or, or Greek and Roman paganism or any of these yeah, things. That and, and Indo-European. Yeah. 
yeah, yeah. Um, I also know, Zhao, that you've written a number of books. Uh, if people were interested in getting your books, would the best way be to just contact you via Facebook? Sure, that, yeah, that's fine. Yeah, at Zal Otterbach. Uh Also, you can go to <clears throat> thebookpatch.com and uh, in their library, a keyword search, uh, um, the last name Levy, L-E-V-I-E, V as in Victor, uh, will pull up uh, all the books that I have on there, um, uh, except for, um, uh, and, and a lot of these books aren't books that I've written, but books that I've published um, that were public domain books and I've either reintroduced, illustrated, or uh, made a curriculum in, for instance, the Keys to Modern Mazdan Magic, the discovery of the Power of the Persian Yashts by Daniel Levy. That is a book that uh, the bulk of the book is the Yashts, uh, the Avestan Yashts in um, English and in the transliterated Avestan. And there is a curriculum that I put in here, a nine-month curriculum, that outlines um, how to use them in an initiatory way, how to internalize them to become um, um, uh, a magician in the true sense of the word, a magian. Uh, it is absolutely a Mazdan book in the sense that it's Mazdan magic and it uses the Zoroastrian uh, holy texts. Um, and you also do a podcast, right? Right, the Pan-Indo-European Faith and Folk. It used to be called uh, the Daily Zoroastrian. There may be links to that still around somewhere, but uh, on Anchor, uh, Anchor, Anchor FM, or on the Anchor app, you can find it as um, the Pan Indo European Faith and Folk. And also, I've got another one that was uh, designed strictly for use for uh, doctrinal things and temple talks. It's called Zal Speaks. Uh, it's also on uh, Anchor, but there's only a few uh, episodes on it so far. Great. And when we when this podcast goes up, I'm going to put all of those links on there so that people can find them. And I highly recommend uh, that my listeners check out Zal's podcast. I've just started listening to it. It's really good. Um, and Zal is a prolific man, if you can't tell from um, hearing in this interview. And I would I'm a member of the Occidental Temple of the Wise Lord Facebook group um you'll find really good discussions and information and images and um, all of that kind of stuff on there and i highly recommend anyone who's interested in this reaching out to zal um he's a really great guy and he's he's you know one of these i think one of the coolest things about living in the modern time with the technology that we have is that like it's it's um it's been my experience that i'll read some books and find some information and then search that person on Facebook and eight out of 10 times people write you back and correspond with you. And Zal is definitely one of those people that if you reach out to him, you're going to hear something back. And, um, and you know, he's open to receiving questions and dialogue. And, um, and I really appreciate you coming on the show today. I would love to have you back on and, um, and you can feel free to say no to this, but I was wondering if you would take us out, with a, a couple of um, whatever you think is appropriate, but uh, when you sent me that message on Facebook where you where you sang some of the prayers, um, if if you could take us out with uh, with something that you that you think might be appropriate, if if you don't think it's appropriate, that's fine, and I understand that as well. But um, I just felt moved to ask. 
Sure, I'd be delighted to. So the the uh, Vestin Mothras, the Mazdan Mothras, uh, we use three main ones. It, they're the Jasame of Onge Mazda, which is the, the shortest one is four words. Uh, the Ashem Bohu prayer is 12 words. Ashem Bohu, Vahishtam Asti, Usta Asti, Usta Amai, Yet Hashav, Hashem. Of course, I'll sing these because they're supposed to be sang. But, uh, and the 21 word one is the Ahunavar prayer or the, or the Yatha Ahuvario prayer. And it's Yatha Ahuvario, Athar Ratu Shashachi Tacha, Vangeus Dazda Manango, Shalthanam, Angeus Mazda. Shatram Chai Ahurai Ayim Dregubio Dadat Vasaram. And so, as sang, they're saying three times a piece. Um, do each one three times and go to the next one. And always start with the uh, Yatha, the long one, the, sh the middle one, and the short one. And I'll do an introductory uh, mantra along with it and then uh, closing one after. Yasnem cha va mem cha ayo jes cha zavare cha afrina mi Ahura he mazda rai watu verananda hatu Amishinam spentanam Yatha ahu airo Asara tu shashachi tacha Wangeus does da manango shoutanam mangeus mazda shatrem chai Ahurai ayim dragubio dadad vasaram Yatha ahu airo Atharatu shishachi tacha Wangeus das da manango Shaltanem mangeus mazda shatrim chai Ahurai ayim dragubio dadad vasaram Yatha ahu airo Atharatu shishachi tacha Wangeus das da manango Shaltanem angeus mazda Shatrem jai Ahurai ayim dragubio Dadat vastaram Ashem bohu vishtem asti Usta asti Usta amai Yarashai Vahishtai Hashem Hashem Bohu Vahishtam Asti Ushta Asti Ushta Amai Yarashai Vahishtai Hashem Hashem Bohu Vahishtam Asti Ushta Asti Ushta Amai Yarashai Vahishtai Hashem Jasa me avange mazdao. Jasa me avange mazdao. Jasa me avange mazdao. Hamazor, hamashobit. Atha jamyat yatha afrinami. Thank you, brother. That is that is beautiful, and I appreciate you coming on the show, and I look forward to having you back again. Thank you so much. Likewise. See you later, buddy. All right.
Thanks for listening to Modern Gnostic. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed recording it. I hope anyone who was inspired or turned on by this interview reaches out to Zal in the Occidental Temple of the Wise Lord and pursues this ripe area of Gnosis further. As always, if you enjoy the show, be sure to like and subscribe wherever you are listening. Uh, We highly encourage you to share this on any social media you may participate on. Send it to your friends via email, send them text links, let them know about the show. Um, And as always, you can find me on Facebook. Um, Reach out to me, let me know what you think. If you have any questions, I'm always interested in hearing from people who like the show. And I'm very grateful for all the listeners and all the people who reach out. I hope you keep listening and I hope you help me spread the word and the liberating fire of awakening that our culture and the world so desperately needs right now. And until next time, may the mystery of that which hangs between heaven and earth descend upon you and remain with you now and always.